This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us. Well, some new numbers released from Statistics Canada are showing some troubling trends when it comes to how people with disabilities have been living through this pandemic and have been impacted by the pandemic. Jewel Smith is the past chair uh, of the council. Uh, Talk a bit if you can. The numbers uh, show this picture. My guess is you've also been talking to people and have been hearing from people. How difficult has it been uh, to make ends meet for people who depend on, on disability, who live with disabilities? I've been hearing some, you know, pretty difficult stories to to witness, for sure. I've been hearing about, of course, job loss. I've been hearing about the increased expenses that are happening for people with disabilities. And I've also been hearing some, you know, despair because the government has taken so long to respond with any kind of support to, to help with these extra costs. What support was there? Because I think there is some confusion there. When everything was being announced, the CERB, the wage subsidy, the different programs that the federal government was announcing, I think there was an assumption that there was also money that was given to people living with disabilities. But it seems like even if there was, clearly it wasn't enough or, or, or there just wasn't, that wasn't done. So for people in BC, we were quite fortunate. Um, For people who live on disability benefits in the province, there was a $300 top-up that they have continued, which is wonderful. Um, But if you live in other provinces, that hasn't been the case. The CERB and such only was for people who were employed um, a certain number of hours in the last six months. Um, I know a number of people who did lose their job didn't benefit from CERB. I know that the recent announcement of funding... um, it's $600 for people with disabilities. It's only if you're uh, registered with the um, Canada tax credit for persons with disabilities, which we know 60% of Canadians with disabilities are not registered with that. They don't qualify, myself included. So it's it's been um, really difficult. And I just want to say also for students with disabilities, the, um, the funding that has come through for that has not benefited, especially grad students or students who don't rely on student loans to go to school. And when you talk about the number of Canadians with disabilities that don't qualify, is that an issue? Do you think there's a problem there with what it takes to qualify? Yes, I do. Very much. <laughs> what, what would need to change there? Or what would you like to see change there that would make things better? Well, I think that it, you know, it's set up to be, um, first of all, the, the process of applying is quite onerous, but it also... Um, makes assumptions about what disability looks like. So if you have a mental health disability, it's nearly impossible to qualify. Um, If you live with a chronic or episodic disability, again, it's almost impossible to qualify. Um, And even people who have permanent long-term disabilities like autism or loss of limb or who are blind often have to reapply after different periods of time. Um, And I just think it doesn't take into account the diversity of what disability looks like today. 
And when you talk about uh, people in British Columbia getting the $300 top up, I've seen people talking about that. And it doesn't sound on the grand scale, it doesn't sound like a ton of money. It's not a ton of money. What difference does that make? How much of a difference does that $300 top up make? I don't think it's making a huge difference. But of course, if you've ever met somebody who's lived on provincial disability benefits, you know, they're amazing with money. So I'm sure, you know, people are stretching it as as far as they can. Um, But $300 is not a lot when you think of, um, you know, if if you live with an autoimmune condition of any kind, you're getting your groceries delivered and that's an additional cost. We've seen grocery costs just rise. Like I cannot believe how much groceries costing right now. Um, The extra PPE that's needed for folks with disabilities who have somebody come into their home, um, often they're paying for that. And they're also having to add additional cost of paying cleaners to come into their home more often because they're having, you know, strangers come into their home to help them with day-to-day tasks. Uh, And I would imagine that's something that's overlooked, even when you talk about something that uh, it seems like the simple task of grocery shopping, which has become a bit more onerous for people in that you should wear a mask and uh, the idea of distancing and and staying safe while you do that. Uh, For somebody without a disability, it's just a few more steps. But uh, you make an, an interesting point. For somebody that physically can't go either because they're autoimmune or can't go to a grocery store right now, it's a huge cost. Mm -hmm, For sure. For sure. I'm, and I'm, I'm hearing that over and over. I'm experiencing that. Um, I've, um, I've started to brave grocery stores, even though I'm very nervous about it. I'm nervous that my service animal might be, you know, picking up something. And so I have to bathe him when I get home because it's very stressful to, you know, expose myself like that. Uh, There's been a lot of talk of when we get through this pandemic about the fact that it has shown cracks in the system. It has shown where the system needs to be fixed, where there's room for improvement. Is your hope that uh, people with disabilities, that there will be reforms to the system and changes made? I always am hopeful. I know that some of my, you know, colleagues and friends across the country are not as hopeful, but but I am. Um, I, we've always known if you live with a disability, you've always known about the cracks in the system. You've always known that you're vulnerable if something happens, whether it's an earthquake in Vancouver or something else. So we've known. It's just it's good to know that the general public is starting to be aware, and hopefully that will generate better response. And what would, I mean, I would imagine keeping the $300 top up would be a start. What else would you like to see done? What changes, what else could government at all levels do? I think there needs to be reform to the Canada Disability Tax Credit for sure. That's that's a number one priority. I think the government needs to look at that um, so that more people can benefit from, from, you know, the tax breaks, cost of their service animal or the extra cost of living with a disability um, I think that um, having a, you know, a, a better income for people with disabilities so that if you are disabled and you're not able to work or you're not able to find a job, that you actually can have a livable income and not be, you know, deciding, do I buy food this month? Do I pay for my medication? You know, that sort of those sort of decisions. I've talked a lot as well about the clawback, about how much money people that are on disability assistance can make before the assistance is clawed back. Do you think that there's room there for change as well in that rather than having to work out that formula, should it not be if you can work and you want to work more and get ahead and make more money, you shouldn't have to worry about the clawback? For sure, the clawback is a problem. And I also think that, you know, if you become um, gainfully employed, you often lose your benefits which I don't think should happen. 
Um, and I also think that the considerations of the extra costs of living with a disability should be considered, you know, when those clawbacks are being looked at. Well, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this today. It, it is something that I think does get overlooked or people make that assumption that, oh, well, there have been all these federal programs. Of course, people with disabilities are being looked after too, but clearly there's room for improvement. There definitely is. Thank you for having me, Joe. All right, Jewel. Thanks so much. Right. That is Jewel Smith, past chair of the Council of Canadians. She was joining us on the line, or sorry, the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, joining us to talk about the impacts of COVID-19 during the pandemic, particularly people with disabilities. We're going to take a few moments to talk about how some of the biggest sports leagues are on pause. Players are protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin, standing up for racial injustice, calling for change. This on the heels of international Black Lives Matter protests as well. Christian O'Mel is joining me on the line, the host of the sports show on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg. Christian, good morning to you. Morning, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts or what, what, do you, what do we know so far? Maybe run down what has been postponed, what's on pause and what's happening with major sports today. All right, so we'll start with the NBA because they're the leaders on this. They started this, the Milwaukee Bucks started this when they refused to play their game against Orlando on Wednesday so three NBA games were postponed yesterday. Uh, three NBA games were postponed Wednesday. There are no games today. Sounds like games will resume tomorrow. NHL, a little late to the party. They decided yesterday they with the players. These are all player-led movements. Let me make that clear. The leagues have no choice but to back their players. The, league, the players are the ones making the calls here. But there were no NHL games yesterday. There will be none today. They will resume tomorrow. WNBA has been following the NBA's lead. MLS uh, postponed a bunch of games. There were seven MLB games postponed yesterday. Again, that's up to the players. So there could be more today. We'll see. Um, but uh, basically every club, every team has had meetings to decide whether they want to play, how they want to proceed. There were seven NFL practices canceled yesterday. The Baltimore Ravens aren't having a practice today. Instead, they're having a, a session to talk about all these issues and uh, the Canadian Premier League they talked yesterday as well they did play but had a moment of unity where everyone that wasn't playing was on the sidelines blocking arms and then at eight minutes and 46 seconds everyone took a knee and raised a fist that time of course significant because that's the amount of time that an officer in Minneapolis had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And do you have any sense, like you said, this is player-driven. We know it's the players that are making the decisions here. Uh, I find it hard to believe that they would just suddenly come back. I know baseball is back. It's a very important day in baseball. But it seems like this is such a big movement and gaining momentum. They can't just come back and start playing again and say, okay, that's done. They're pushing for actual change. Right. And so one thing I know the NBA is doing, 100 employees, uh, are striking today as well with the players, and they're going to be spending the day calling elected officials because they recognize that really the the way that you make change here is you need to force people in power to change the status quo. And to do that, you got to go to the politicians. So the NBA is doing tangible things. The NHL uh, yesterday, the players said, and I, I'm kind of on board with this, we can't really do much in a bubble, right? We're here. We can talk. We can say stuff. But until we leave and go back to our home cities, we can't do much. But we got to make sure when we do go back, we don't just have these words that are empty. We actually follow through and do stuff. And one thing the NHL can do is work with the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which was started a couple months ago by a number of 
former and current black hockey players and they've got a list of initiatives and they you know they've got their new organization so they have to step up with some organizational details as well but a couple of things that have been leaked are asking the NHL for money to fund grassroots initiatives and anti-racism initiatives and uh, talking to owners and having arenas be used as polling stations in the uh, November election in the United States. And that's another thing beyond politicians is owners, right? These are very powerful men, usually very powerful, rich white men who are in positions to do something to help change the status quo. And I think players are trying to send that message as well. All right, Christian, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to bring us up to date on this. My pleasure. That is Christian O'Mell, the host of the sports show in Winnipeg at 680 CJOB. Want to hear from you on this, your response to this growing movement when it comes to some of the biggest sports leagues there are. Your thoughts on what you're seeing happening? You can give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899. Email me as well, jill at cknw.com. Well, still a lot of questions about what the return to school will look like. We heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. She is still fully behind the plan, saying, yes, there could be a few cases, but it's not expected. There will be widespread, uh, the widespread cases of COVID-19 that, that will come in the schools. We know that all 60 school districts now have their reopening plans. They have been publicly posted for people to see them. But there are still a lot of parents out there who aren't 100% convinced that it is safe to send their kids back. So are they thinking about homeschooling? If so, what do they need to know about it? Patty Marler is an advocate for home education. She joins us now to talk about what steps parents could take if they are considering that. Patty, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a huge step. And even talking to parents who were kind of thrown into trying to do some model, some form of this uh, back in June, a lot of parents struggled with this. But if they're seriously considering it, what's the first thing they should do? Well, there's a couple different ways that you can educate your children at home. Um, first, you can do similar to what people ha- uh, did in the spring, which is DL learning, distributed learning where uh, a parent will enroll, the school will provide them with material, and then they will administer the material at home. There's also another registered option for, uh, for BC students, um, and that's a more traditional sort of homeschooling format. So if we were to compare that, uh, the DL format Uh, parents would have curriculum, they may have three different children, they'd be working on three different curriculum for each student, uh, doing three different social studies programs. Whereas if you had a registered homeschooling student, then you may all be studying uh, the same material at once. So for example, you would develop your program plan If you wanted to study, um, say, China, you would all sit down. You may read the Red Scarf Girl together as a family. Then your grade two student would go off and look at some of the artwork during the Ming Dynasty, look at Chinese New Year. Your grade six student may begin uh, writing an essay on it. And maybe your, your grade nine student would begin looking at the current events happening in China you know, the takeover of Hong Kong, the, the genocide that, that's occurring. So 
uh, it's a much easier um, way to do things as a as a family. Um, as a as a parent, you would develop the program. We have resources to help people with that at homeschool.today. Information on our website on how do I get started doing this. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the approach is built on an idea that you are going to teach your child to competency. One of the benefits of homeschooling is that you never need to worry about completing the material that's given to you and your child not understanding what they've been trying to learn. So you can take the time you need to make your make sure your child understands, is competent with subjects, let's say multiplication, that they really understand these concepts before moving on to others. Uh, does it work, though? Do you have to make the commitment that if you decide to move to homeschooling, is that it, that it's a permanent decision? Or can a child still, at some point, maybe a few months later or the following school grade, go back into the public system? Yeah, you know, homeschooling's been happening for years. So uh, people have moved from one system to another. They've, they've homeschooled for a year, and then they decide to to move back into uh, a public system in another year. That has been happening for years. And what about parents who are worried about the amount of time that it takes to become a homeschooling parent? Well, I mean, it takes a commitment. Homeschooling your child does require a commitment. But the actual time that it takes to complete the work at home is significantly less than what a brick-and-mortar student would spend in, uh, in school. So you can go through a lot more material in, in a much shorter time because you're just serving the needs of your individual students, your individual children. So, I mean, in the young ages, uh, you, may be, you may find yourself um, completed your work by noon or one o'clock, and then you have um, the whole afternoon to do other things. The beauty as well is that you can structure it so that it doesn't have to start at nine and be done at one. You can move things around. So in terms of a time commitment, I mean, you know, no questions asked. Home educating is a commitment. It requires you to develop a plan to evaluate your student but it requires much less time than what a student would be in school. And that's even what I was hearing back in June with parents that are that were trying to keep up with the school curriculum, trying to follow that 9 to 3 timeline or trying to follow the same timeline as the school timeline and not not realizing no that it is completely different and like you said, you can do it in a much shorter time. Oh yeah, there's so much more flexibility and more flexibility in terms of what you can do with your children too. You can explore their options uh, or their, their interests, their hobbies. Because there's much more time available at home, your student is going to be able to flourish and do things that they haven't had time to when they're in school. They'll be able to, um, uh, to maybe do more mechanics things uh, with, with dad in the garage, or they'll be able to um, study, uh, spend more time with their animals and learning about animal 
you know, how, how things work with their animals or hobbies. So the, the flexibility is significant in home education. Is there an issue, though, with if you haven't always homeschooled, getting a child to respect you as the teacher in that there's a bit of a difference in mom and dad or whatever the parental makeup of the family, their parents, and then there are teachers. And I was hearing that from, from some as well, in that students or kids were not looking at their parents with the same respect they might give to the teacher. Yeah, what I typically tell people when they bring kids home is that there is a de-schooling time. Now, the beauty of what's happened, uh, not that there are many beauties of what's happened with COVID, um, but the beauty of, of where we are right now in terms of home education is that that de-schooling time has already occurred with most families. The worst is over. So that time where there's the struggle, there's the clash, there's the, you're not my teacher, all of that kind of stuff, you have already been through the worst of that going through the COVID time. Now you're moving in the upward stage. So, um, so people, your kids and, and your relationship is actually going to grow and flourish much more now. The respect will increase. You're at a time of an upward plane instead of the downward plane. So that's a great thing. All right, Patty, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Sure. And if people want more information, they can go to homeschool.today. We have a lot of information on how to get started. Uh, where do I go from here? Uh, just want one final thought. The best indicator of a student's success is the parental involvement. And kids who are home educated, research shows, do so well because their parents are involved in their education. All right, Patty, thanks so much. That is Patty Marler, a spokesperson with Homeschool. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for being with us on this Friday morning. As you know, some other countries are ahead of Canada when it comes to children going back to schools, reopening schools, and BC has been looking to those other models, seeing what we can learn from them, hoping if there are any mistakes, we don't repeat those mistakes here. One of those examples is Denmark. Well, Shane Woodford, who is a former CKNW employee, now a freelance journalist in Denmark, is right in the thick of it, and he's joining us now to talk more about that. Shane, great to chat with you again. You as well, Jill. How are you? Uh, Very well. Uh, I know we talked last week about some flawed testing and what's happening in the school system there. Uh, You've been talking more about that. So how are things as far as kids going back and being back in schools in Denmark? Well, knock on wood, everything is going really well. There hasn't been uh, any COVID news, infection, explosion, uh, any kind of incident directly related to any Danish school that I'm aware of. The one exception to the back to school, which here in Denmark started a month earlier than you guys, it starts in the first week of August. Uh, in the first week of August, the school was going back. We had a, a bit of a national um, 
outbreak in cases with numbers here not seen in months as far as daily new infections. And one of the hot spots was in Aarhus, which is Denmark's second largest city. So while everybody else in Denmark went back to school, uh, kids in Aarhus were actually kept home, and uh, a lot of them still aren't back in school yet and won't be until at least September the 4th. Some of the restrictions are lifted now, but uh, those kids are still out of school. But other than that, and that's not directly school-related, it was to do with the outbreak in that city uh, directly, not not with the school system itself. But those kids ended up staying out of school just as an added precaution to try and tamp down the number of cases. But other than that, Jill, it's been... Uh, I think Denmark has been held up as a worldwide model on how to get it done correctly. And how are things being done? I know you have a young child in the school system, but how did they bring kids back and assure parents that it was safe to do so? Yeah, uh, cautiously. Um, <laughs> it began uh, in the spring uh, when they began to lift the lockdown. One of the first things they did was bring kids up to grade five back to school. And they kept all the other kids home. They did the younger ones because they're the least risk for infection. Uh, There was a lot of concern back then about kids potentially being used as guinea pigs. And a lot of parents were really, really nervous. And and rightfully so. It was uh, was a really big deal. The coronavirus then uh, was still, you know, the Italy situation here in Europe was really, really terrible. Uh, It was pretty top of mind. But kids went back to school, Jill, and the cases kept falling. There was no major school-related COVID explosion. Uh, everything was fine, and then they went into the summer break, and then they came out of the summer break in August and resumed a normal school year, a normal quote-unquote. Obviously, there's COVID restrictions still that mostly now revolve around sort of cleanliness and personal hygiene. Uh, so is there anything as far as learning groups? Are kids supposed to stay with, with a certain learning group and not kind of go outside yeah. that bubble, or what? what does that look like? Yeah, the kids are contained within their own class, which in the context of the Danish system has been a bit of a curveball here. Uh, the system is structured to have a lot of interclass play, a lot of interclass bonding time, even between grades. Uh, that's a big part of the system to sort of establish a social fabric, a social network for the kids as, as they grow up. Uh, they have not done that this time. Every class stays unto itself, including uh, when they go outside, there's chalk lines on the sidewalks delineating uh, where the kids from each class can go and, and not mingle with the other kids next door to them, that kind of thing. So that's been a bit of an adjustment. There's, of course, social distancing inside the class of one meter. It was two meters in the spring. They've since reduced that over the summer here in Denmark. Uh, and it's just a ton of hand washing. Jill, kids wash their hands first thing when they show up for school. They wash their hands after every activity, after every bathroom break, after every cough, before lunch, after lunch. They wash their hands so much, there's actually guidelines on how to moisturize their hands so that they don't get too dry and chapped from the frequent hand washing. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a lot of hand washing. Uh, yeah. One of the things here that I think is different than what's happening in Denmark, there are a lot of calls here from teachers, uh, in some cases from parents. They would like to see a mandatory mask policy. But from what I get from your yeah. writing and your tweets, that's not something that's that's top of mind in Denmark. Not at all. Uh, The only place in Denmark where you're mandated to wear a mask, and it's only about a week or so old, uh, is on public transit. So buses, ferries, trains, taxis, that kind of thing. You have to wear a mask if you're you're on a bus or even a bus station, a train station, on a train, etc. There is no mandate outside of that in masks. As a matter of fact, up until a few weeks ago, uh, when there was that sort of uh, fresh explosion of cases in Denmark, Masks were really an anomaly. In the entire pandemic, Jill, I could probably have counted up until a few weeks ago, I could have counted the number of times I've seen a person wearing a mask in Denmark on one hand. 
So kids are not wearing them in schools. There's no mandate to wear them in schools. Uh, and even the mandate to wear them on public transit, Jill, is only mandated for people 12 years of age and older. So young kids don't have to wear a mask on public transit here either. And is the reasoning there because we're we're told here now, and it has changed from the beginning of the pandemic, but the idea being yeah. my mask protects you, your mask protects me, and it stop, doesn't stop you from, from getting it, from being exposed to it, but it does cut down right. the chances of spreading it. Yeah, and social distancing was the big thing, and hand washing and hand disinfectant. I mean, they they just they adopted that with a fury here. You can't go anywhere in Denmark without somebody having a bottle of hand disinfectant there, and uh, there's markers on the floors everywhere in stores, etc. I mean, and and the fact is, Denmark um, people here just you know there's a common sense sort of social fabric in this country, and people just adopt those things. They go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. If it makes everybody around me safer, it makes me safer. We'll do it, and the entire country just buys in with very little problem. Even the mask mandate on public transit, uh, to my knowledge, there's only been two fines issued in the entire country in the last week for someone not wearing a mask on public transit. Hmm. Uh, and how are the numbers doing as far as cases? Yeah, there was an explosion, like I said, due to that, uh, a rise in cases in Aarhus and then uh, an outbreak at a slaughterhouse in the outskirts of Copenhagen. Uh, cases were over 100 for the first time in months per day. Uh, that has since died down about 71 today. Uh, and authorities have actually said that uh, the the growth has flattened out again, and they expect it to keep kind of going down. So the signaling from public health is that uh, the second explosion is kind of tampered out and that we're, I don't want to say good or okay, because we're not until a vaccine is developed. But there's the concern level here has dropped a little bit over what it was, say, two or three weeks ago when cases were climbing and everyone was going, uh-oh, this might be that second wave everyone keeps talking about. And just before I let you go, I wanted to touch on the the flawed tests. And we, we talked about this yeah. previously as well. But a lot of people, what we're told uh, in Sweden as well, that they had COVID-19 when they didn't? Yeah. So uh, there's a company called BGI Biotechnology, ironically located in Wuhan, China, uh, who supplies corona test kits. And Sweden is saying that the test kits that they supplied are faulty and can't differentiate between somebody who has some mild symptoms but does not have coronavirus and coronavirus itself. So it's giving out false positives for somebody who just has a couple symptoms but not the actual virus, according to what Sweden says. So they say prior to August 15th, there's around 3,700 people in Sweden who were told they have coronavirus when, in fact, they may not have. Uh, So they've knocked that number off their total cases, and they've lodged a complaint with the World Health Organization and notified other public health agencies that these kits may be a problem. Uh, As of today, the WHO, Jill, has uh, taken the issue up with this company in China and asked for a full sort of forensic analysis of their test kits to determine exactly what's going on here. All right. Well, Shane, thanks so much for joining us once again. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Uh, that sounds good. You stay safe. Well, you've likely heard about how sound some of the issues when it comes to pollution and cleaning up the region. Some new numbers are out when it comes to the ecological health of that part of the world. And uh, let's take a look at the data. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Ocean Watch manager Aroha Miller. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, first, just to, to Ocean Watch, how would you describe kind of what Ocean Watch is? Um, Ocean Watch is a program and we look at the health of local coastal um, environments. 
Um, so we've been working very closely for the last 18 months within the Altitsum Chopnawit Health Sound area. Um, and we've been working with a lot of the local governments uh, within that area. Um, so we also do other small reports where they take a look at very topical issues in the marine environment at the moment. Uh, we've looked at that region and known that in the past, because of industry and other practices, there has been a large amount of pollution and also a big effort to clean it up. So how are things doing there now? Um, there's definitely been improvement. Um, it's been very positive. Um, you're absolutely right saying some of those negative impacts on health sound. They were historical industrial impacts. A lot of people in the area from Vancouver um, were familiar with Britannia Mine Museum. Um, and that came about because of the Britannia Mine that operated there for just over 70 years. Um, and that was cleaned up by the BC government um, throughout the early 2000s. And that really reduced a lot of pollution and heavy metals going out into the water. Um, there were some paper and pulp mills operating in the sound for some time. Um, there's only one of those mills operating now. And they've really closely followed government regulations and recommendations. Um, they've put in place water treatment for effluent treatment. Um, and they conduct environmental monitoring every three years, and the numbers coming back from that are showing an improvement, as in much less contamination getting into the environment, which is all really good. Uh, we've seen places around the world, Venice comes to mind early on in the pandemic when we saw the water clearing up and, and some animals coming back into that, that region. Has there been a difference, or has the pandemic had any uh, impact, do you think, on how sound? That's a really good question. Um, that's not something we specifically looked at within Health Sound because this particular report, um, we had a, the content completed before the COVID pandemic hit. However, um, as I mentioned before, we do look at other topical issues and one of those issues we looked at was how COVID might be indirectly impacting marine mammals. Um, things such as ecotourism operators, um, or boats out on the water, BC ferries, for example, they all reduce their operation quite considerably. And we know that animals that live underwater um, often rely on sound. It's, uh, a lot of people think of whales and dolphins relying on um, sound underwater. So that reduction in marine vessel traffic would definitely have had some sort of positive um, impact quieting the waters for those animals. Um, but we didn't we didn't specifically look at how sound. So this is just kind of me generalising. Sure. Um, it's also been... Um, in some ways, COVID's also had negative impacts. And for example, our Marine Mammal Rescue Centre had to close its doors for a while because the, because of the work they do, they weren't able to um, follow COVID guidelines. So they just had to stop work. And that meant that there were some marine mammals that weren't able to be rescued. Um, but happily, they've been able to reopen and continue the operations now. If there was one area that you think still needs work, what would be at the top of that list? I would definitely have to say climate change. That's um, probably the largest threat facing not only the sound, but um, the world as a whole. Um, there's so many implications from climate change. It touches on all aspects of our life. Um, everything from um, storm events becoming more intense and more frequent um, to changes in stream flow, um, which can impact food webs in the marine environment, um, through to the more obvious ones that people straight away think of, such as sea level rise, which can take away coastal habitat for certain species, um, and ocean warming. Um, so something we've done in this new report, we've applied a climate change lens across the whole thing, and we've asked in every single article in there, how will climate change affect this particular topic? So it might be, how will climate change affect salmon? How will climate change affect sea stars, or whatever the topic was at the time? So we've also added some new articles in there, 
um, giving a bit of a brief background to climate change and how it's going to impact that region, um, and also looking at ways to help and support shifting your community to zero carbon emissions. All right. Uh, Aroha, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time, though. I appreciate that. Thanks. There is a lot going on. So we decided we would end the week, at least the week of mornings, on a high note and talk about the incredible story you've likely heard in the news. It started in Pitt Meadows and it traveled, oh, about 1,300 kilometers away. It started with a broken arm some balloons. And well, from that point, let's bring on uh, Alicia, my guest, who's going to explain how things unfolded with the balloons that took quite the trip. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, It is quite the the story and we've had snippets of it on the news. So maybe uh, start from the beginning. How did this all unfold? So my daughter attended camp last week and um, she broke her arm. She tripped on another child's foot and broke her arm and was quite an extensive amount of repair that was required. She um, had to go under anesthetic to have her arm reset. And the company that I work for, amazing, amazing group of people, sent her a balloon bouquet along with um, a tray of chocolate-covered strawberries. And on the balloon bouquet was a Get Well Wish card. And on the other side of that card... Um, was unbeknownst to me, uh, my, well, I kind of, I think I figured out that that was the tag that that they had delivered on. So it had uh, my name, my phone number and the address. And I think I just kind of didn't really think about removing it from the balloons. And she was taking the balloons around the house and kind of taking them everywhere she went. Uh, And on Sunday, we were doing a dinner party for my mom. It was her birthday. So we're socially distancing. Uh, My mom has recently had a heart attack and has had five stints put into her heart. Hmm. So it was just uh, very close. It was just uh, the four of us um, and my mom with the patio dinner. And so we were decorating outside and Eliana said, hey, let's put these balloons outside, um, you know, for my mom's birthday. And I said, well, those are get well balloons. I don't know that they fit the theme. And she said, well, she just had a heart attack. And I was like, oh, okay. So we set them underneath, um, actually a very heavy speaker uh, on the deck. And, you know, we went about our party. We, we had, you know, the dinner and the cake and uh, took my mom home and was cleaning up outside afterward. And I couldn't find the balloons. And my husband had left for work, so I'd messaged him, hey, do you know where the balloons are? Did you put them downstairs or where are they? I uh, think maybe he tucked them away somewhere. And he messaged me back, no, the last I saw them, they were on the patio. So, you know, uh, obviously for me, it's uh, I'm not a balloon releaser. So I was actually quite upset thinking about the consequences of, you know, where would these end up? Could they be, you know, tied around a bird or in the ocean? And Eliana was very upset because she also is very, you know, environmentally conscious. Uh, so we went to bed thinking about that and being a little bit upset and then, you know, Monday rolled around and life gets busy and we continue doing our thing and kind of, you know, at the back of our mind were the balloons. Tuesday I was working and I saw a phone call come in uh, from a very random Alberta number and I thought perhaps it was just spam. Uh, so, you know, I ignored it and it went, uh, it, it did, I thought if it's important, I'll leave a voicemail if it's not, you know, a spammer. And there was a voicemail. So a few hours later, uh, when I had a minute, I checked the voicemail and it was a woman, to, you know, talking about a, her brother's field and some, and I couldn't, I kind of got confused. Was it her brother's balloons or 
But I listened to the message, and at the, I thought it was the wrong number, actually, at first. And so I listened to the message, and at the end it said, and there's a little card attached, and it says, get well. So get well soon. And I hmm. kind of, like, at that point realized, oh, my gosh, she's, she's talking about our balloons. And so it, my, the hair on my arm stood up. I was like, I had to listen to the message again. I, should listen, I let my husband listen to it. And we were all just so shocked. And then, you know, I called um, my boss and was like, hey, you know, guess those balloons, you know, you gave us, this is what happened, told her the whole story I just told you. And she she lives in Alberta. So she's like, where in Alberta? And so she messaged me a picture of, like, a map in the distance. And it was 1,300 kilometers. Oh, my. Couldn't even believe it. Like, I couldn't believe it. So we called Doreen. Um, who was the woman who found the balloons. Um, my daughter and I called her that night, and we had a very good chat with her. And I think we're all just so shocked. She she herself said, you know, the way that they landed in the field was perfect. She said her and her brother, her brother was doing, I think, putting hay up. And he, they just came across these balloons, and they're sitting perfectly in the field, all of them upright, all of them intact, with the, with the get well wishes of the other side, the delivery card still intact. And she, you know, said that she kind of thought, should I call? Should I? Should I not? And then just decided that she was going to call. So uh, I'm so glad she did because you know what? Things like that, you know, you worry over things like that. Could could they have ended up somewhere terrible? And um, you know, to have the resolution, but not just the resolution. The amazing story of the distance they traveled is just un- it was unbelievable to me. Uh, yeah, hard to believe that they stayed intact and landed that way. Now, am, am I right in saying I thought I'd seen that she's going to send them back to you? She is actually. I called her yesterday just to touch base with her and let her know that you know um, the the news was interested in this story. And uh, she said, "Well, it's so funny that you're calling me because I was going to call you. Uh, I went yesterday into town and I took a little box for your daughter with a little you know gift from me and a little special note from me. And I also included uh, the balloon bouquet, although it's deflated. They I included it and it's in that box that's been sent off now." What an uh, amazing story and uh, glad that they, they ended somewhere with, where somebody took the time and cared enough to, to call. And, and like you said, that you don't have to worry now that they're in uh, hurting an animal or, or right. hurting the environment. Yes. What, yes, an, absolutely. <laughs> what an amazing story that you now have to share. I know. I think we'll treasure this one for the rest of our lives for sure. I mean, it's just, it actually seems quite surreal. And, you know, we're all still, I think we're all still absorbing this because even though it seems like something so tiny and you know maybe people are like oh you know no big deal it it is actually a really big deal to us in every way because you know we are now we've met this wonderful woman who's so kind and caring who took the time to out of her day to just you know do the right thing and and close the circle and for us it's just incredibly meaningful like you know when when I listened to her voicemail my hair stood up and I, I had tears in my eyes that somebody would take that that effort to do that. I think right now at this time of of life for for everyone, just hearing a, a sliver of good news or you know a kindness between two people uh, is is really meaningful. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for joining us uh, for telling the story again. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a great day. You too. We'll leave it.